and welcome to Counterpressed on The Ringer and Spotify. I'm in the studio with Jesse Parker Humphreys and Becky Taylor-Gill. The Counterpress Book Club returns and it's a lot less smutty this time, <laughs> boys and girls. <laughs> Lots of a few parents who I know messaged me on Instagram and said that they skipped the Cliquu episode. Do not fear. This one is going to be... To be honest, be... I can't believe parents let their children listen to the Counterpress like anyway. No, but I, I respect it. I respect it. Cleek you an episode so iconic, Becky's been dragged by the fact that she did it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, the legacy. Becky's not allowed to have opinions on things anymore because she once read some smut. But it's so funny because I love, I love when I get Becky silly, silly, silly tweets and then suddenly one serious one. Oh my God. We had it Kelly the other day. The, with, the official one. Yes. Oh my God. I literally sent it to Carlotta and I, I was like, send, I love when Becky goes serious. I meant to send it and then I forgot because I was on the way somewhere but I meant to send it being like, I just love because it's like, <laughs> I, it's bookmarked by the most silly nonsense. It's like, and I meant to say like, winding up Arsenal fans, winding up a serious comment about ACLs yeah. and the official. And it, it's so funny because I meant to be like, have you been hacked? Or like, did you put this through AI? Because Guys, I can be serious. I can do both. Get you a girl that no, can do both. I know. I get you a book club who can do both. Like us, we click you and there's episodes. I was today. so rattled when private quote tweet tweet so Twitter came for me when I tweeted about the um, Conti Cup Aston Villa Man United thing. <laughs> I did it in a serious way and everyone was like quote tweeting me like Pfft. I was like guys I have to do one serious one every now and then to like balance out the silly like come on let, let me live. No it's fair uh, enough it's fair enough. Oh I just love it and uh, we had, we've had so much nice feedback about the Valentine's Day episode as well lots of lovely messages we've gone ahead and set everyone free to go on their date so hopefully they keep us updated I'm hoping for some love stories some feedback I want us to become like that Guardian blind date column but in sort Mm -hmm. of like queer dating slash women's football so we can do some updates of how the dates went hopefully all good actually at the studs karaoke night ran into a couple people that I had matched up we had matched up the Baller FC studs memorial Arnold Clark Arnold memorial, Clark memorial evening. yeah and I had a long chat with one of them and always good to shack up with someone at a funeral I say. <laughs> yeah that's where the best connections are made <laughs> over the buffet Arnold would have wanted <laughs> yeah. the event looked amazing sorry I couldn't be there I was still away but it looked it very fun very fun R.I.P. 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 Arnold my favourite well the ex-girlfriend's Guess who was incredible? Oh my god! But actually, I think the best thing was the sort of actual memorial table with the candles. That was beautiful. Thank you. I worked really hard on it. That was really, really good. Yeah. Did anyone sort of pray at the altar of Arnold? <laughs> <laughs> no, but Emma, uh, you know Crystal Palace. Yes, Emma, shout out. She got up first to do karaoke and did a beautiful. I actually can't remember what the song was, but a beautifully moving tribute to Arnold. I saw a video clip of that on Instagram. Yeah, I can't remember so what it was. Good. But I've got, I'll yeah. show it. I've got a video as well. And cool. she kept kind of like pointing towards the memorial. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll stick it on it the Counterpress Instagram it was later. Gorgeous. Wow, what a moment. Well, yes, today Counterpress Book Club back in session. It's a it's a serious one because we can do both. The right. We can do both. So we're, we're on a serious one. We're going to be talking about Casa Semenya's autobiography, which came out back end of last year, The Race to Be Myself. So let's get stuck into it after this. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, 
It's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. All right. Well, whenever we do these sort of book club or TV or film sessions, we always start with general vibe check. What do we think about the book? I enjoyed it. I think she's really funny. Um, I know you said that this is like serious and it is. It's a serious topic and there's serious things to talk about it. But I do also think what I really enjoyed about it is how like unserious she is in in some ways like people get dragged one of my biggest notes was this is so funny to read (laughs) guys i on that i will just read out my favorite favorite part which is really (laughs) straight in jackie's like here we go it's really funny on like that i just yeah she drags people in such a funny way and this one really i laughed out loud (laughs) (laughs) right after the balloon race britain's Gemma simpson who i don't think about much said she wanted to be diplomatic and she understood this was a human rights issue. It's so funny. It's like that um, Mad Men meme which is like, I feel bad for you and he's like, I don't think about you at all. <laughs> Honestly, the, and that happened time and time again in this book. I think, yeah, my general vibe check was I laughed more than I thought I would <laughs> for the sheer fact that I respect someone who holds grudges like Cassie oh, Semenya does. Oh, she is does. so me. And I was talking about this with one of the baller crew on Tuesday night and they were like, well, if you were her, you would, wouldn't you? And I thought, yeah, I bloody would actually. Yeah. No one is safe Sub-co, from being... I, w- I will hate you to my grave. Wow. No one is safe from being dragged in this book. Sebco, Lindsay, Lindsay Sharp, Sharp, Paula Radcliffe, the woman who testifies for the IAF at her <laughs> trial, who tries yeah, to apologise Even the people she grew up with back in South Africa, yeah. she drags those boys all the time yeah, the boy whose mum brought him round oh to her God. house only for her to beat him up again <laughs> dragged that was like 20 years ago you know what's funny though is the one person that I felt like she didn't drag was the Russian girl that beat her okay, and was, also and dope a problematic we've all got not hand, drag yeah we've all got our hands up here because Oscar Pistorius Oscar Pistorius yeah. what the hell was that about I want to get on to some of those uh, surprises question mark of which well, that was one of them it, it, shortly because there are a few bits where I'm like, Castor, are you sure about this? But I think when you talk about the general sort of format and vibe of the book, tick, 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 the fact that, yes, grudges are, you know, there's endless supply of hilarious dragging in there. Anyone who has ever wronged this woman, you best believe it, you're getting mentioned This is in this what book. my mum would be like. <laughs> you too, you're not safe. <laughs> you know what's funny is that if you mention someone in a book, you have to send it to that person's representative or to them to have a read in case there's a legal issue. They would have been very busy with this book. Like, think about Alex Scott's book, and there were quite a few people mentioning that. We obviously had, like, people who are well-known in the women's football space. But this was global. We had athletics, we had doctors, we had random people from her childhood. <laughs> Everyone was getting mentioned. So uh, hats off to that. But I think when, I talk, when we think about the general format of it, I don't know what you guys felt, but what was so hilarious reading it is, I don't know who the ghostwriter is. It's unclear in the book who it actually is but it felt like there was no ghostwriting whatsoever yeah. it was like she just dictated it into a microphone <laughs> and they wrote down exactly what came out of her mouth and I was reading a review about the book or an interview that The Guardian did when it came out and the writer there described it as uh, 
it, lots of Instagram captions. And I think it, it does feel quite almost like stunted. Casta Semenya in her Caroline Calloway era. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's just like, boom, 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 boom. Like, for me, maybe that's one of the criticism I would have is that I don't think it flowed supernaturally because it felt a little bit stunted because the rhythm of it was just so, yeah, fuck this guy, <laughs> fuck this guy. Yeah, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think there was times when I was like, this is very like, obviously when they're talking about the trial and stuff, like there's bits where it gets like quite academic mm. and then it like, it's like punctured by these like, oh, that's, that's her voice. <laughs> that's where she is. I think like the first half, I really enjoyed learning about her childhood, but I think that went on for quite a while. Yeah, we we said that before we started recording. But yeah, definitely I felt like in some ways I thought it was great because I think it's really important that like her life and her experiences are more than like yeah. what she had to go through. But also I felt like it came at sort of the expense of some of the stuff she did go through feeling quite rushed. And the thing that I'd find interesting about this, which I don't think we're we're going to be able to have a perspective on, is like how it comes across if you're not very like immersed and aware yeah. of that kind of thing already. Because I know like obviously we reviewed that film, which touched on like a lot of similar stuff. And then the, some of the stories of, of the other women in this book like came up in that film. And so I felt like we were quite au fait with mm. what she was referring to. And I did wonder whether that balance might have felt a bit intense if you didn't know all of that stuff already mm. I think it just felt easier for me to breeze through it because I was like yes I know that happened yes I know that mm. happened yeah the, the the documentary category woman which we reviewed last May you can find it on the counterpress feed we'll do a plug there but yeah we spoke to the filmmaker and it was a really interesting documentary Casa Semenya did not appear in that I think we talked about it at the time about how that was obviously very intentional because I think you get that here about this is very unique for her because she's clearly a very private person. So her doing this book is huge. And I completely agree with both of you. I think the fact that it took nearly 200 pages to get to 2009 World Championships felt like too much for me. But I did find it interesting to find out more about her life because she is such a private person. I kind of knew nothing about her upbringing. I knew that she came from you know, a, a poor background in a pretty remote place in South Africa but beyond that I didn't really know tons about her life so I did enjoy learning more but I was a bit like hun let's just get to the chase here because that's the drama that's you know we want to know more about your experiences there and there are very new and real revelations that she's never spoken about one of those being the fact that she started taking estrogen under the guidance because of the the IAAF said this will be the only way that you can race and the massive side effects that she had and things like that so I wish we'd kind of got to that point earlier as much as I did enjoy finding out these funny things about her life, like when she pretended that she was her twin brother that didn't <laughs> exist. That was quite good. I think one of the things that is important from that is how much it complicates Western ideas or white ideas of how gender and sexuality is perceived in like rural parts of Africa because I think often those stories like aren't told with the level of like publicity or fame that Casta Semenya has attracted and I think actually those elements are really crucial in sort of setting up the rest of her journey and crucially like the kind of dichotomy that she comes up against which are her own personal experiences of her gender and also how they relate to her sexuality versus being put into a um, you know sort of global regime that prioritizes white western versions of that and I thought those elements were, were really interesting just because I don't think they're stories that get told and I don't think they're stories that are told in 
it's not a story that's told in the way you'd necessarily expect it to, I think, if you're coming from like a white background, from a Western background. Yeah, I think she talks about some of those other um, stories of women who maybe have grown up in in families that aren't as supportive as hers. And I, I kept thinking that throughout the book. It's so lucky that she grew up with a family who just accepted who she was as she was. Because I don't I think if she hadn't, then she would have questioned herself more. I think what I took from a lot of the book was that she's very, very secure in who she is and she's mm. very happy with that. And the only reason that she ever took those drugs was because she wanted to run. In the film that we watched, there was Annette Nagesa who did have the surgery and there's so many women who probably would have gone through that surgery. Cassis Menu was, you know, very strong in the opinion that she was, her body was working and nothing was wrong and she wasn't going to cut it open just to adhere to these Western white standards of what is a woman's body. hundred percent. And I think you get that that theme of sort of determination and defiance throughout the book, even from a, an early age where she is so, she's so sure of her identity from really early on and she's not willing to budge for anyone else. She talks about how she was really proud of her body and her strength and how she was different to a lot of the girls in her community. And she goes and has to live with her grandmother at quite a young age, leave her local area and move to a completely different part of um of the region in order to help her grandmother and she meets these two cousins who she ends up having quite a funny relationship with but there's still this theme of like where she's kind of perceived in her local community and and a respect like there's moments where some boys in her upbringing sort of try and push her a little bit and she just punched them in the oh face oh my god so many flat, that first oh half god, of that she book she loves fighting yeah, she's full, full of fights <laughs> but I kind of respect it because I'm like at least you're being honest you you spent your younger years fighting and that you know it was less physical as your life went on even though she came close to punching someone when they were videoing her wife <laughs> late on but still you but that same energy and that same drive and that same attitude of so much of the world is against me it was still there in her running career as it was when she was scrapping as a kid all these random people and the way the language that also came through in those sections which was so informal and the way that she would talk to these boys and be like yeah I'm going to make moolah I'm going to make money <laughs> I found it really funny that like yeah actually let's just put in the real conversations that you would have been having let's not frame these in a polite way just because you're putting it in a book like that's why I found that quite funny I did think it was interesting though as well like sort of the narrative between like the construction of her gender which especially as a child she sees herself as like one of the boys and she talks a lot about how different she was from her sisters and this is no like shade on her and her experiences but I am so bored about every book I read and it's like I was different from all the girls I'm like so many of you were different from the girls you probably weren't that different but like I get that in that those small like any small community it's always going to feel like that whether that's your secondary school or your village or whatever but then how different that was from like her innate understanding of her sex and that she saw herself as a woman and I think obviously like the sex gender distinction is something that comes up a lot in like discussions around trans and I think even though for a lot of people that can be a very helpful uh, way of distinguishing between different experiences, I think in, in other ways, actually, in almost Semenya's case, seeing sex as a binary also shows you like how problematic that is. But I thought just 
generally like the like construction of sort of like masculinity versus femininity and the construction of being a woman versus being a man was really interesting in terms of how it like played out through her childhood and then through her life as a whole. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you know, there's quite a lot in the book about how she doesn't want to be defined and she would not refer to herself as intersex and also not as a lesbian. That felt like a bombshell. Yeah, I was really like, wow. Right at okay. the end, I was like, whoa. Yeah. She's like five years old being like, I'm going to marry a woman. Yeah. And I think it just shows that all of these conversations are just like extremely nuanced to like that person. Because I think a lot of the time, obviously it's really frustrating to read big chunks of this book. It makes you really angry. I felt like a lot of people, as you said, those people that get dragged, I think that although she doesn't refer to herself as intersex and and so you know that's why I'm like a bit hesitant and and all of these conversations are very nuanced but I think to me they don't like her because as soon as you start to unpick her case you kind of tie yourself in knots about what gender is and that's proof through the book they they at no point can they ever prove that you know her testosterone level is what's causing her to be such a good athlete there is I don't think really an answer that that these people like Sebco and, you know, these lawyers are looking for. There isn't one answer and that's where it gets really, really complicated. Let's get on to some of the yikes moments because you mentioned Pistorius. That was really yikesy to me because I feel like there was ample opportunity to enter a few paragraphs of obviously his life spiralled into a bit of a darkness and the fact that he got the most glowing review of like club legend, great guy. It was was, Nelson Mandela, Oscar Pistorius. It was quite problematic and disappointing. Jesse, you've got your book open, (laughs) ready to wax lyrical. No, it was really intriguing because when I initially read it, I was like, This is a really interesting Mm. opportunity, I think, to discuss sort of like the complexities of of heroism because it is very easy. Like I remember very clearly when Oscar Pistorius was like one of the most famous athletes Mm. in the world and she's like referring to meeting him and getting a level of respect from him, which she didn't feel like she got from other athletes who were around her. And she's also talking within the context of him being a white Africana, a middle class guy and her coming from like a poor black background, which obviously in South Africa takes a lot of resonance. And then she sort of finished it off. And I was like, wait a minute, like we're not going to go into this (laughs) anymore. And the line she finishes with, no one could foretell how our lives would eventually play out. Each of us would come to be seen as both heroes and villains, admired and scorned by the world. And I was like... Custer, some people see you as a villain and some people see Oscar Pistorius as a villain. Very but you different. did very different things. Yeah, you didn't kill someone. Um, and I thought that was really bizarre. I think what's important, and I think what came through a lot in this book, because I also found like some of her discussions around trans women a bit complicated as well. Becky, you already mentioned like how nuanced these individual stories are. And I think it's it's a really good reminder of like how bad it can be to take one of those stories as sort of like the spokesperson or like the entirety of a very like complicated and important thing because like all humans are fallible in some ways and I think the Pistorius sort of blind spot and the way that's glossed over really sums that up. Yeah, he was like an incredible story and we all loved watching him run in and the Olympics. And she very Olympics. explicitly is also talking about his legal battle to run with able-bodied yes. 
yes. people, which I guess in some ways has resonance with mm. her battles against, you know, like what does it, who has the right body to run in what category. Yeah. And I also think that there's a lot of times in the book where, you know, she's an 18-year-old girl. She She's come from a small village in the north of South Africa and is suddenly thrust into this, you know, role as a political pawn almost between a lot of things and she she says she didn't want that that's not what she wanted she just wanted to run and I think towards the end of the book you can really tell that she she becomes that activist that people wanted her to be but that that is a hell of a lot of pressure for an 18 year old who has found out in the press she found out at the same time as everybody else that she had internal testes the the indignity of of that is unbelievable and yeah I think that it's really difficult and yeah it shows that yeah having one person who is kind of the face of this especially when they are not prepared in any way to be that person is really difficult the other thing for me as well obviously the Pistorius thing is one thing but she she flip-flops between basically saying it doesn't matter if you dope, you beat me, you beat me, which I thought was crazy, ridiculous. And then towards the end of the book, she suddenly says, oh, well, the IWF haven't spent enough time chasing uh, doping. And I'm like, hon, you said doping was fine because if they beat you, they beat you. So that w- there was there was a bit of hypocrisy actually throughout the book where she, the editing there should have picked up on the times when she went back on herself. I don't know if it is though, because I think what's interesting is, so what she says is, the way I see things, whether the drugs I was being forced to take her to slow me down or the drugs she'd taken to speed her up a win is a win that was the first time in my life that I felt like I truly got hit by another runner I respected her for that win I still do and I think where she's coming from and I think what's really interesting in her discussions of racing itself is how much it's almost not about her times and her numbers she really focuses on the race and she talks a lot about how the perceptions of herself came from the idea that she had these negative splits which again is so funny because anyone who's ever done running tech will tell you that like negative splits is what you're aiming for um but you know this idea that she looked like she wasn't trying at the end of races and i think all of that is because her focus is on racing like she is a competitor and her ability and how fast she actually ran in terms of times whilst that is important it's almost like in service to racing so i feel like when she's talking about the individual she's talking about the fact that like on that day she lost and i think she feels like she should have been able to compete but then when i think when she's talking more generally about doping she's more referring to the fact that like the iaaf has chosen to focus far more on um, gender testing and like chasing athletes out of the sport as a result of that rather than on doping cases even though clearly it was all going on at the same time and it then comes to light that you know like people within the IWAF were taking kickbacks from Russia for example on this stuff and I do think it's interesting but I think she is sort of making the distinction between sort of the competitors as individuals versus the regime and I also think the other thing that's interesting is she places a lot of stock in respect and I think that's where it comes from because she feels rightly that she was incredibly disrespected by the people she ran against throughout her career and I think because she's someone who's obviously so so principled she cannot even really bring herself even about a doper to 
not like show them some kind of respect and that they still like beat her in that race. I, th- I also think she's so principled in, in the essence of like competition and victory in sport that she thinks, you know, the doping that doesn't involve her races and her events is, you know, that's to be handled separately. But if it happens at her event and someone beats her, she's like, fair game, man. You beat me. <laughs> the game's the game. The game's the game. Which I find just quite uh, hilarious. But I do think it's like that. If you can beat me, then hats off to you, even though you cheated there. Which, I, yeah, I just find the whole thing so hilarious. And there's a whole side conversation to be had about the chaos of the Idol AF and their previous presidents and their previous president's sons and everything that happened with Russia. And, you know, there's lots of documentaries and great stuff about that. We Maybe were, we should go and do Icarus. I Maybe Icarus we is should. such a good doc. It is a good documentary, but that is for another time. But yes, I think she makes that point of the sort of irony around the scandals that that federation's been involved in and why her, her issue has become its own scandal when actually she was born this way and and there's nothing that she's done apart from taking hormones in order to try and reverse the process that would would change that so well and that's the hypocrisy right like on the one hand the IAAF will say that doping is bad and taking drugs that alter your like natural mm. physical state is bad while also saying no but if you're this kind of person take drugs that alter your natural physical state if you're too good yeah <laughs> I also, well, speaking of the too good element, we get highlights of this throughout the book, but I think the fact that she comes into running actually quite late because she was very focused on being a footballer and the fact she didn't have access to high quality level coaching until very late, I think also proves the point that we've spoken about before when when we talked about the documentary or we talked about trans inclusion sport in general is this kind of actual innate unfairness that exists in in elite sport where depending on what part of the world you're you know you're born or the access and resources you have there's always going to be a difference and you know there are lots of you know she mentions this but lots of athletes who are born with natural advantage Michael Phelps she mentions that if you think about lots of sports like basketball there's an obvious height advantage you know and and the way that we pick apart people's bodies in a way that seems okay sometimes but is is unnecessary necessarily in others and I think that speaking about coaching is really important because I think it does show that element of you know there is so much luck that elite athletes will stumble upon and the reason that the UK is dominated in lots of events especially for example indoor cycling which is extremely expensive to be successful at is because they have the resources and the technology um, you know and most importantly the money to become very good at that sport and Casasemenia didn't have access to any of that coaching until very late on and even then it wasn't necessarily the best coaching available in the world it was the best country coaching available in her country and I think it's important to reference that because it is not just you are born and your biology means you're going to win everything there are so many other factors that come into it that will influence your success and that's also why this kind of witch hunt is so ridiculous because they are creating these parameters which are often only going to impact women in a certain um, place in the world like geographically and you know a lot of the time it's African women but it's also gonna just not consider those other factors which play a massive part yeah and she 
and I can't actually like speak to this because I don't really know enough about short and middle distance running, but she speaks explicitly to when she was thinking about whether she tried running the 200 metres or the 5,000 metres after she was banned from the 400, 800 and 1500. She says that she feels like she couldn't run the 200 metres because you need a certain level of coaching to give you the power to compete over that distance. And she talks a lot about how and again, this comes back to this thing of like being competitor and enjoying racing. She talks about how she obviously feels like sort of tactically, that's how she was able to like excel at and do very well at the 800 metres. But she actually preferred running the 1500 because that was almost even more of a, a tactical race. And I think that's very interesting as well, because so much and this just shows, I think, how basic these like top level discussions are but you know I think people don't really understand like the complexity of what competing in these kind of athletic events is like because I'm like oh well if you know Custis Menia just has all this like amazing testosterone and she can just run faster why wouldn't she just go and run the 100 meters because that's like pure speed and power on the face of it and I'm like well no there are so many different dynamics here which can't even be pinned necessarily on testosterone and that's kind of shown by like if you take the basic like tenets of what testosterone supposedly allows you to do and then look at how like it affects supposedly different people in different events you're like no even the internal logic there doesn't really make much sense there's no logic to it <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no. There's, there's none like so much of that kind of court case in the end is about them trying to prove that she has this you know magical advantage because of testosterone What's funny is that the argument that she's running slower and just winning to like not raise suspicion or something. Yeah, that's so the whole the conspiracy theories are really, yeah, insane. It's really and bizarre. that's just and that's just to to try and argue against the fact like wh- like she said like why did I never break the world record like why did I lose these races I I wouldn't have if I just had this magical thing that was making me amazing. Let's talk about where she finds herself now, because the book came out before the European Court of Human Rights' case. So obviously there's been quite a few different cases now. Some of it sit within the sport. And I think we touched on this before when we talked about the documentary. But obviously the issue so often with this is that the IWF or World Athletics can do whatever the hell they want because like other governing bodies in global sport, they're a rule unto themselves because they can legislate and do what they want. They don't really have any higher power that they need to kind of consider. It's only the core arbitration for sport that ever rule in that sort of neutral capacity and how neutral is that? It always comes up for debate across all cases that they hear. But there are so many different cases that she's been involved in. So there's been IWF Court of Arbitration for Sport, as well as the Swiss High Court, and then the most recent, which is the European Court of Human Rights. Now, she won that case not long after the book came out, and they ruled that, yes, the the, the way that she'd been treated, it was in violation of her human rights, but it didn't impact the RWLF's case at all, because they can still regulate as they wish. So where does that leave her now? Well, at the end of the book, she says that she's effectively retired because she can't really compete at all in the way that she'd want to Jesse you mentioned like the 200 for example and I think part of it's almost like point of principle but she she raced the 200 in the Diamond League because she wanted to also prove a point in that you know she didn't want them to get rid of her but now she wouldn't be they that's what they then changed they changed it so now when they first ruled 
generally, they ruled on the 400, 800 and 1500. And then they ruled again and ruled on all athletic events. And then they, as part of that, they reduced the levels to such a minute amount that it's effectively impossible for anyone who would fall under this, which includes a lot of women from Africa, would be able to meet that level, which is like 2.5. And when she was taking the hormones, it was 10 that she had to reach levels of testosterone per like milliliter or something. I can't remember the exact scientific specifications but I think throughout that and there's a bit towards the end where it gets sort of quite like you're reading someone's calendar of sporting events because it's like 2016 raced XYZ Diamond League and I'm like okay I maybe need a bit more here because I'm getting lost with with the sort of the spread and the timeline but I remember I was working at the 2017 World Championships in London and I remember that race because I was there I actually went with my mum I got her a ticket because that was when Laura Muir had her massive like World Championships break breakout she actually finished fourth in that race but the atmosphere was amazing because like there was obviously Casas Semenya there who's such a big name but the home crowd were kind of going crazy for Laura Muir. But at that time, you know, she'd had a strong period before that and post-2009 because IDLF were almost still figuring out what they wanted to do. She'd been taking the hormones, still having on and off success, one in Rio, one, you know, defended world titles. But then what happens in 2017 is these new guidelines come out and that's almost like the beginning of the end for her, the beginning of some huge court cases that she's going to have to undertake. And there was the 2016 one, two, three at Rio of all African athletes. And that almost kind of symbols like this is where the battle is going to be drawn. And then we get onto a lot of Sebastian Coe dragging from then or in. But it feels like 2017 is like a real turning point in a bleak way, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, she talks very explicitly about the feeling that it was the fact that it was an all-African podium that really, um, you know, forced these things forward, as well as feeling like there was a bit of a personal vendetta against her. And I think, you know, that's kind of understandable for her to feel because she's one of the only athletes who has really been able to to push back against it. And she talks about, you know, like feeling very grateful that she didn't go through sort of the surgery that lots of other athletes were kind of basically tricked into going through with, which really impacted their ability to compete. And I think also what's very, very telling about her sort of kind of theories around this and her experience around, you know, to be explicit, the, the racism within within athletics and within this sort of witch hunt against African women competing at a really high level is about how all the sort of reporting around this is just this dubious, tittle-tattle gossip. It's just like sad white European women predominantly going and crying and being like, I think that woman looks too much like a man. And it's like, this is just the most insane reporting process that you could ever have. Um, it was really, it's, it's mad because I wrote this in my notes, like in what serious world do you build investigations and regulation around gossip and rumours? It's ridiculous that you would basically go on this investigation 
purely on hearsay. I mean, we'll probably get onto the wider conversation about this idea of what a woman looks like and what especially black women's bodies look like. And therefore, we're picking apart women based on this idea that they're too masculine. And it, you know, it is such a Pandora's box of just toxic, problematic theories and philosophies anyway. But just also the sheer kind of governance issue of like, why are you listening to what probably just jealous athletes who aren't as good are telling you and whispering like that's no way to run your sport. I'd like to say that Lindsay Sharp came sixth in that 2016 race. And did you remember when she talks about being her at junior level as well? Yeah. <laughs> I was counting the f- first reference comes in at page 101. And then I thought, <laughs> okay, here we go. It's just like, you're you're not good enough. And even if these women hadn't been competing, you still wouldn't be good enough. So I don't know what you want me to say, babe. Yeah. No. I think the other interesting thing that um, she, Castus writes about, which I thought was very this is right at the end of the book but I thought was very on point was also to basically say that like lots of those women should thank her because she pushed (laughs) them to be the best athletes they can Mm -hmm. be and she talks a lot about the number of PBs that were run in that 2016 800 meter final like Lindsay Sharp won a PB the Canadian woman whose name I can't remember she won a PB and I thought that was like really interesting because it almost again sums up the whole flaw with this sort of bizarre idea that there's are too fast that you can run because you just defeat the whole point of sport which is that the competitiveness makes everyone work harder and get better and that's how sports move forward and records get broken and I thought that was a really like sort of nice way to jab back at the people who'd like been so so disrespectful to her to being like you're only as good runners as you were because of me anyway. One thing that the whole time I was reading this I was like you've just Sport is about the is about the competitiveness, and for like for fans, it's about like the joy of watching these people push their bodies to like the absolute limit and seeing what they can do. And you've just you've what is what is the point in all this? You robbed us of this joy of watching her compete for all these years. She's taking these hormones. She's feeling like sick and terrible and not being able to put basically put on the best show that she can that she deserves to be able to do that we deserve to be able to enjoy it's just like we've made up sport and we can like it doesn't it it doesn't matter and we've made up gender and we've made up all these things but we've made it so difficult and horrible for ourselves and it's just it It's so frustrating. But that's what's really interesting as well, isn't it? Because it always comes back down to being like, so who benefits from women not running as fast as women can run? And it is the other category that exists, which is the male category. And I think I was thinking a lot about Foucault while I was reading this book, which I often do. (laughs) But one of Foucault's big theoretical contributions to philosophy was this idea that sort of built on, on Marxism as well, but that like power can operate through things that seem objective, like science. And I think that's the thing that comes up again and again, sort of underlying in this book, even though Casta Semenya does not reference Foucault, which is fine. Um, (laughs) But the fact that having two categories based on sex is based on a science that is presented to us as an objective truth, even though it's abundantly clear that there is no actual objectivity to this. And then the reason that is done is what Foucault would say is for reasons of power and consequently to uphold a binary system of sexes which exists to benefit men because that's how history has worked. That's like all of transphobia, right? Is like, and that's why I think sport is the perfect place for transphobes to really like 
get their teeth in to their hatred is that it's like they they have this platform of like this is what science says and science can never be wrong but you're just using that science to like justify your hate i don't want to engage with a lot of those arguments because they're made in bad faith and we all know they're made in bad faith but there are people out there who might listen to the transphobes of the world who say I'm just here because I want to protect women's sport which is what Sebastian Coates yes is is, is his whole stance is he's protecting the women's category and women's athletes and I think just like I said I don't want to enter into a bad faith argument but just for the people out there that might not be as clued up on this stuff and and might listen to those people and think, oh, well, yeah, you know, like I want to protect women's sport too. They are not doing it for that. If they wanted to protect women's sport, if they wanted to have women's sport be flourishing, they would donate that £70,000 not to transphobic court cases that are trying to legally change the definition of woman to be trans exclusionary they would be donating that £70,000 to grassroots women's football clubs grassroots women's sport in a way that can really really have a positive effect on women's sport standing ovation out here in the studio I can hear them clapping from outside (laughs) yeah it's very true and and she makes the point in the book that where are these investigations around the difference in men's testosterone levels within men's racing because there will be different levels in all those athletes in all different distances, but there's never any kind of research. And then you talk about the objectivity, Jesse, and you know throughout this there have been holes picked apart in the IAAF's research of which they sort of updating as they go. And Casta Semenya is very critical, as you would expect of it in her book, but in new levels that I haven't even necessarily seen before. Because I, you know, we know about having talked about documentary about the flaws in their research and how, you know, the process and the validity is questioned, especially, you know, with the way it was brought together and everything like that, like the scientific actual kind of strength of it isn't there. But she even questions, you know, the data that they used, the the people that were, uh, you know, whether they ethically were actually given, you know, full approval and understood the the research project that they were getting involved in, et cetera, et cetera. So she goes into a lot of detail about that. But I think it, raised, yeah, it raises that question about, what is presented in this current discourse around this idea of protecting women's sport in general and how you do have to question that when it's always referred to in every single article you read it's always referred to around this kind of idea that oh the research says what is this research because you know the case has been proven that it's not necessarily the most reliable or objective thing often that there is a bias there and it's there is going to be something at play where people are going to be releasing information that is there to benefit their rules and regulations because obviously it's in their invested interest to do that. And I think, you know, this book, although it's not about trans athletes and and she doesn't necessarily, like we said, want to use the label intersex, it naturally comes onto that conversation because it's that battleground that we're experiencing now where the intersex conversation hasn't gone away but you know it's almost like people have forgotten about those athletes because they've disappeared because they can't compete the new frontier and the new battleground that people are becoming obsessed with is excluding trans athletes yeah and it's fascinating obviously I guess for people who 
maybe weren't aware or don't remember this happening. But, you know, the fact that some of the big kind of transphobes that exist within sport now, people like Paula Radcliffe, used Casta Semenya as their sort of first battleground, which always to me feels like the most kind of ironic thing because it kind of reveals like how made up all of this stuff is. Because I kind of think, again, like Becky said, don't want to engage in bad faith arguments because they are, they're ridiculous. But I'm always just like, I kind of feel like based on their logic, she's someone they should, they should be more on her side than against her. But again, it doesn't, none of it makes sense. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting that she talks about as well, which kind of relates really interestingly to a discussion of like, what does the female category within sport stand for? And she talks a bit about, um, sort of the construction of femininity within women's sport and how she was criticised for not like being exhausted at the end of races and feeling like that women were sort of expected to like be really exhausted and flop on the ground and be like really emotional and because she didn't like perform in that way and it is performative that's partly why she was seen as like being different. And I think it really made me think of um, grunting in tennis, which is a discourse <laughs> that doesn't like really exist anymore. But again, was actually about, I think the time that Semenya was like first racing was just something you could never get away from like discussions over. But I think shows you how whilst lots of these conversations can be like very scientific and based on biological ideas of sex and what that looks like, there is another layer of gender and gender performance and femininity that like takes place within the arena of sports which I think is under discussed now because everyone is so focused on this idea of like what does it mean to be a woman and who gets to compete well that's the irony of transphobia right is is she says in this book there is no right way to be a girl and that is like feminism 101 (laughs) and yet really transphobes have got themselves so turned around in their arguments that they have gone back to this like really performative femininity and it's just it's just going backwards i also think the body is amazing (laughs) and like respect uh, the body respect to the body like it's it's i think it's really interesting to think about is that there isn't anything wrong with Casa Semenya's body her body is her body and it's very powerful and she lives with you know some male reproductive organs and some female ones get over it like literally it's just like it's crazy that the body can do that and there'd be no problems for her and it's just like I just think like gender is crazy and we can do what we want and it's so exciting but they're just like so bogged down in like you know being hateful that they just they don't get to experience like God, how fun is it to just be like gender is nothing and we can do anything <laughs> and we we've kind of touched on that academic side but yeah it constantly comes to this conversation about what you know how a woman should behave what being a woman looks like around gender around race and womanhood and I think it's important to reference that because yes on the surface it's about the complexities of sports governance and her experiences as an intersex woman but I think you know these wider conversations come up so much more we did talk about in the documentary episode we want to talk about 
a, a lighter side of this, which is a nice, you know, way to finish on a bit of a love story with someone who actually called her out for looking like a boy in the first place. <laughs> but early on, you know, she references and there's a bit of a sort of Easter egg, although it's quite blindingly obvious. But she says, you know, oh, Violet would soon play a massive part in my life later on. And I thought, OK, you're going to marry her. But yes, someone she competed against early back in the day in South Africa said to her, you look like a boy, you're not a girl. And it turns out... Out, they fell in love and they had a wonderful love story and I think that defiance throughout on the way that she was so clear on her sexuality and who she was and you know people tried to out her and tried to say we're going to ruin your career and actually I didn't realise ignorant moment that South Africa legalised same-sex marriage in 2006 mm. bloody hell Way, way ahead of the time. I thought it was so great when she was like, yeah, this Western idea of coming out. Like, I was just like, I'm going to marry a woman when she was five and Deal then she it. did it. And it's just like, it is nice, isn't uh, it? Also, that reminded me of one of my favourite bits whereby she looked at all uh, the dicks of her friends who were guys <laughs> yes. as, a kid, as a teenager and told them whether they were good dicks or not. Yeah, that was so funny. I mean, <laughs> there was stuff that was that, that that kind of colloquial element that I mentioned before that comes through and, then, and that matter-of-factness. Like, she does not mince her words and if you had a tiny penis Castle was going to tell you she was going to and she almost used it she she kind of weaponized it as well because she was like if you fancy my cousin I'm going to tell you whether you know I'm going to tell her and I'm going to say whether you're good enough or not and I was like okay Castle wow really manipulate people here but yeah you know she she now is is in this kind of I guess peaceful stage where she's got two kids she's got her lovely wife Violet and this next phase she's written the book or she's released the book she's told her story and it feels like you know she mentions maybe coaching or other things but I do feel like not that this has put an end to all the the pain and suffering because like we say like um, Wambui for example can't compete and you know she's almost like a forgotten athlete even though she was extremely impressive like these people still exist and we've sort of not talking about them anymore. But I do think it's like almost like a nice full stop to say this woman's still only in her 30s. She broke onto the scene so young. I think there's a nice positive future there for her in whatever she wants to achieve. And I think that's nice in a way to not feel like, you know, we're only ever going to remember her for that pain and suffering that she went through. Yeah. And I think also what is kind of very I like I hope is fulfilling for her and she talks a lot about you know like her humanity and her as a person and I hope that like maybe sort of freed from what she's gone through to an extent she allows that to flourish even more because I think actually that's maybe the thing that stood out most for me about this book is the way her and other athletes who've gone through similar things to her were and are so dehumanised by the IAAF, by the media and I think that's actually the only thing you need to sort of realise and understand around the way these things operate and these things are run there's no respect given to the people who don't fit into the categories that have sort of arbitrarily been decided and regardless of the fact they have been decided there's then no compassion shown to what that means and I actually think that's almost like the cruelest element of all of this and all you really need to know about how rubbish this whole idea of like protecting sport or protecting women's sports really is. I also just think I went back after I read it and I watched a couple of her races and I think 
maybe that's like a nice way to end it for me was just to enjoy her racing enjoy her running as she was enjoying it and she's so talented and she's so amazing and it is such a shame that she had all of those years where she had to change her body in order to to do that but just watching her run is a joy and she says in the book as well like you know they'll never be able to take away that like I was the most talented Mm. athlete of my Mm. generation and it's true she's such an incredible incredible runner and if you've not ever seen her run before yeah I really recommend going to watch her because she like just flies and it is amazing to see you can never scrub those records as much as they might try well that was good fun really enjoyed it and who knows what's next on the Counter Press book club agenda I know a few people have sent us some other smutty things they want us to read (laughs) she followed me the author I of think that, Casa Semenya the, uh, the author of that other yes sapphic so we are kind of long on the, on the smutty read list because there's a couple of others we spotted one as well um, in case the word that yeah, was that's another the one she, oh, the that's author, the one that author of that followed okay, me okay so I know I'm not saying that we don't want to do more smart but if there are any other books that people <laughs> would like to recommend and we might touch on the smuttiness maybe in the summer in the off season um, but obviously we're going to do some more book clubs um, it does require us to read the book so that takes a bit of time but well for me for me because I'm the slow reader in the group so I always have to think far ahead when we're going to do them (laughs) Flo got the Custis menu book for Christmas (laughs) I I do will admit I only started it on my holiday so that is quite quick for me because it it takes me about yesterday three months to read a book (laughs) at least so yeah do drop us a message if you enjoyed the book what you thought of the book as well um, and if you're going to read it and uh, yeah, give us any recommendations of stuff you think we'd maybe enjoy or sometimes we don't even enjoy it, but we might just pick it apart. So I think actually Clique You, no, it's really <laughs> Hey, I love Clique You. And I got I got two messages while I was out of New Orleans saying, are you on the Clique You tour? And I didn't, <laughs> even, I didn't even put two and two together. I thought, oh my God, I literally am. I was getting beignets and um, yeah, getting some messages. So wow. hilarious. Anyway, we'll of course be back on Monday with a bit of an international break debrief so we'll see you then.